Hey there, and welcome to Take One, the podcast where we give you a very brief insight into one, just one, sweet page of Talmud every day. Today's page, 44, begins with a story that's a little bit hard to take at face value. Well, even the Gemara itself acknowledges it. Let's read a little bit. The Gemara continues to wax hyperbolic. Rabbi Abahu ate fruits of Ginosar until the sweet, lush fruits made his skin so slippery that a fly would slip from his forehead. And Rav Ami and Rav Asi would eat them until their hair fell out. Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish would eat them until he became confused. And then Rabbi Yochanan would tell the household of the Nasi about his condition. And Rabbi Yehuda Nasiah would send the authorities after him and they would take him to his house. What is it about the fruit of Ginosar, which is a place in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, that made them so incredible, so sweet, so desirable that your skin would go slick if you ate them and your hair would fall out and you would go mad? And the Gemara continues on and on to tell us more and more about this mystical fruit. What is it about that fruit of the land of Israel that made so many great rabbis go crazy? There are a lot of interpretations to this strange question, and most of them have to do. There are a lot of interpretations to this strange question, and most of them tell us that this passage is there to basically warn us against any inclination we may have to be too ascetic, to say to ourselves, well, you know, if the only life that matters is the pursuit of the Torah and the mitzvot and the commandments, then maybe we should not enjoy anything of this world. Maybe we should just retire from the world and do nothing all day but pray and study. The Gemara wants us to be happy. It wants us to realize that we live in a world, that we have a body, that from time to time we do deserve, well, pleasure, because here in this world, the body and its requirements are just as important as the soul. But it's not just any fruit that these rabbis are eating. It's the fruit of Ginosar. It's the fruit of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. And that too is meant as a kind of mystical note, as a kind of a reminder that even though we may be in exile, as many of the rabbis in the Talmud indeed were sitting as they were in Babylon, we should always strive to return to this one mystical land from which we all spring. And that reminded me of a little love note that I wrote a while back to someone very special, and I'd like to share it with you now. I was 23 when we broke up. I was young, but that was hardly an excuse. She was my first love, older and sweaty and rich with mysteries. I could look at her for hours, and when I tired of looking, I would close my eyes and take in her scent that sweet, heady mixture of jasmine and ficus and days spent trying to outsmart the sun. When I moved in with her, my fingers were still stained with the grease I used each morning to shine my army boots, but she didn't seem to mind. I wasn't her first, but she made me feel like I was the only one who ever mattered, and she made me want to be a better man, even when I had no idea how to become one or even what a better man might be. For a while there, I thought she liked her guys tough, so I took stabs at smoking and prayed that the dead-eyed stare I put on with each drag came off as pensive and cool rather than a symptom of how sick each cigarette made me feel. 
Then it was on to an avant-garde phase with tickets to see modern dancers and throat singers and drunken bards and clubs that smelled like urine. When the latest affectation faded away, both of us laughed it off. We were still both plenty young, and we were allowed to play dress-up all we wanted before we surrendered to maturity and its fixities. Ours ended like love stories always do, with a hundred chafing arguments, with one or two moments too many spent seriously thinking what life would be like without her, with an awkward evening of silence pierced by sudden goodbyes. I still loved her, but I didn't think she could give me the kind of life I wanted. The kind of life I wanted was in New York. I have always lusted after Manhattan, and Tel Aviv, my beloved, always had an intuition. She knew that to me, to borrow a line from the poet, New York was a town that existed in black and white and pulsated to the great tunes of George Gershwin. In Tel Aviv, I could be warm and creative and beloved and sandy and well-fed and tanned, but only in New York could I be as monumental as the buildings and as sharp, containing multitudes. What used to me were Allenby Street and Dizengoff Square, parched old relics cracked by the heat, when Bemelman's bar beckoned and Florent, that crazy diner inside an old meat locker, whispered to me to come and join the merry misfits who congregated there each night around 3 a.m. I wanted to wake up in the city that never sleeps, and then one day I did. For many years, I hardly thought of Tel Aviv. When I saw her on brief visits every other year, I frequently recalled a line by the late Israeli playwright Chanoch Levine, who wrote that farewells were never the same for the one leaving and the one staying behind. I had left, I told myself, and now I was a man in full, the sort of chap who knew how to make a strong martini and write a decent book. She had stayed behind, and she was still lovely, but her hopes were still aimed too high and her standards still set too low. I felt sorry for her. When we met, I was comically courteous, the way one can only be with small children or former lovers. This week, I visited her again. It was supposed to be another quick check-in, a brief peck on the cheek, and I was happy to distract myself from thoughts of reality with Arak on the beach and Masabacha in the shuk. I approached Tel Aviv with a sort of soft, distant benevolence I've mastered over the years. Things just weren't the same. This time, there was something else about her. I heard it in the cadences of the lifeguards on the beach, shouting out their poetry to a mob of swimmers who chattered in Russian and Arabic and English and French and Hebrew. Lady, you with a bikini that looks like a starfish, get out of the deep! Or, if you lost an 11-year-old boy, we have him here, but don't hurry back, we'll raise him right. I saw it in the gorgeous new park erected over Sharona, site of the pre-state German colony, where high-end pizza joints and gorgeous playgrounds now stand where Nazi flags once flew, and where, later, the Israeli army stored much of its musty bureaucracy. I felt it in the way people spoke to me in English, even as I made an effort to address them in Hebrew, realizing that my native tongue is now bleached by a trace of an American accent. It dawned on me slowly, but when it did, it couldn't be any clearer. I had it backwards all along. Tel Aviv was the one that had moved on, and it looked at me, together with its new young lovers, with just as much pity and regret as I had felt for it all these years. With my baseball cap and my madras shorts, I was the provincial tourist, 
the dolt who stood quietly in line at the bakery and commended himself for not jostling around because he believed good manners were the ultimate virtue, the sad sack who traded deeply intoxicated drumbeats of the tribe for the finicky jazz notes of some foreign and cold capital. I had believed, once upon a time, that the course of my personal evolution depended on moving away from the Mediterranean, moving westward to the temples of reason and the halls of prosperity. I had believed that history tumbled forward in clear phases, and that progress meant having the courage to leap from one to the other, and that enlightenment dictated extending a hand to those who had, for whatever reason, fallen behind. I had believed that the future shone bright for those who vigorously championed peaceful resolution of conflicts, who worked to usher their brethren into the global economy, and who looked to the international community for guidance. These were all things I thought Tel Aviv was too thick-headed to understand. It never occurred to me that this city and the ancient land it had carried into modernity were looking at me as they had looked on so many conceited young men hailing from so many empires, now long gone. It never occurred to me that they had considered my aspirations before. It never occurred to me that they knew something about human nature on the shores of the Mediterranean that they haven't ever considered on the Hudson. It never occurred to me that in Tel Aviv, I was a lovable idiot. This is the other arrogance, seldom studied in American universities, not of west toward east, but of east toward west, of Eternal nations shielded by undying faith, looking down at nice, neatly dressed men and women and mocking their weakness and their earnestness and their illusion that we all want the same thing and that it's the duty of the learned to teach the less fortunate about the true nature of their desires. This is what I felt in the beaches and the streets of Tel Aviv this week. It made me love her all over again, of course, maybe even more than before. But it's too little now and much too late. And so... May we all have the good fortune of tasting, even for one brief moment, the fruits of Ginosar. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Magazine. If you enjoyed this show, please go rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly section of Reading Daf Yomi. I'm your host, Leah Leibowitz, our producer is Josh Cross. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope you've made your day a little bit more Talmudic, and we'll see you again soon.